Hello, and welcome to a Baha'i Conversation. My name is Anthony Naimi. And I'm Michael Sabat. We started a Baha'i Conversation as a way to enrich our own understanding of the Baha'i writings, to share some of the insights from those writings, and hopefully to spark further Baha'i Conversations. In each episode, we look at a particular dimension of the teachings of the Baha'i Faith, explore how it relates to ideas and society at large, and discuss how it might serve the needs of humanity today. Today, we are going to present the first in a series of episodes designed to give a sort of introduction to this podcast. These episodes can't give a comprehensive introduction, but we do hope to highlight a few ideas in the Baha'i Faith that, in our understanding, are foundational, and that inspire us and help explain why we think sharing our experiences in the faith is important. Of course, entire books could be written and have been written to explain what the Baha'i Faith is. Trying to explain any religion, indeed any movement or philosophy, is complex. You can tell the story in different ways, depending on what you focus on. Some accounts focus on the history of the religion, the life of its founder or prophet, the story of its growth from the first handful of followers, the persecutions, setbacks, and triumphs experienced by the community. Others focus on what we might call the philosophy of the religion. What are its ideas, its claims about reality? Then there is the story of its social teachings, the vision it holds out about what humanity can be. While this social approach also touches on philosophical questions, such as what is a good life, there's also a story to be told about the lived experience of the religious community. What is it like to be part of this religion with others? How do we interact with each other and with society? Another important lens for looking at religion is through personal stories. Each adherent can give us their own intimate and unique appraisal of what the religion means to them. Of course, there can be even more lenses than these. So which of these stories will we try to tell? Well, later episodes might focus on one or the other of these stories, but for these introductory episodes, we're going to try to interweave them without being exhaustive or comprehensive with respect to any one approach. So, rather than a linear history of the Baha'i Faith, we'll have a few stories from that history. We'll highlight just a handful of important philosophical points about the Baha'i Faith, and we'll convey a little bit about our own experiences, both of community life and of our personal spiritual journeys in the faith. We hope this episode will set the stage for much richer explorations of each of these as the podcast continues. But remember, while you're waiting for new episodes, you can always do research of your own. Baha'i.org is a great place to start. Today's episode will feature a couple of stories from Baha'i history that shed light on a few key claims made by the Baha'i faith. First, we'll give a basic overview of the Baha'i understanding of religion and its role in history. We will see that religion, in the Baha'i view, is fundamentally one phenomenon revealed progressively to humanity, that humanity itself progresses and matures thanks to the progressively revealed chapters of religion, and that today is the day of humanity's coming of age. Next, we'll turn to a principle that animates every facet of the Baha'i faith, namely, the oneness of humanity, and we'll try to show why something that sounds so simple is potentially so revolutionary. This discussion will be intertwined with an exploration of who exactly Baha'is understand Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, to be. 
A new life is, in this age, stirring within all the peoples of the earth, and yet none hath discovered its cause or perceived its motive. Baha'u'llah. The year is 1912. Abdul Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i Faith, has arrived in America. He has come to meet the nascent Baha'i communities of the North American continent and to meet with the American people, to speak of the need for and the requirements of peace. Some voices from the East at this time are decrying the West, condemning the materialism and hedonism that they see in European and American life. Other Eastern thinkers do the opposite, glorifying the achievements of Western nations and calling on their compatriots to follow the Western example. Abdu'l-Bahá sees the matter differently. Speaking at a gathering in New York, he says this, since my arrival in this country, I find that material civilization has progressed greatly, that commerce has attained the utmost degree of expansion. Arts, agriculture, and all details of material civilization have reached the highest stage of perfection, but spiritual civilization has been left behind. Material civilization is like unto the lamp, while spiritual civilization is the light in that lamp. If the material and spiritual civilization become united, then we will have the light and the lamp together, and the outcome will be perfect. For material civilization is like unto a beautiful body, and the spiritual civilization is like unto the spirit of life. If that wondrous spirit of life enters this beautiful body, the body will become a channel for the distribution and development of the perfections of humanity. For Baha'is, there is no contradiction between the unprecedented advances in material civilization over the past two centuries and the pressing need for spirituality in the modern world. Indeed, the importance of both can be seen by comparing the life of humanity as a whole to the life of a single human being. Like the individual, humanity itself has its stages of development. It has passed through its infancy and childhood, Slowly its capacities have grown, for good and bad. But while this progress has been slow for almost all of recorded history, the past handful of centuries have seen a dramatic acceleration. An acceleration in scientific and technological development, social complexity, artistic expression, and more. This is indicative of a humanity that is reaching adulthood and discovering capacities and powers within it that dwarf those of childhood. Now, we know that every child requires loving guidance and education at every stage of its growth in order to develop properly. The same has been true of humanity. Baha'u'llah teaches that humanity's collective maturation has been guided by a series of divine messengers or manifestations of God who have appeared throughout the world and across time to teach us what we needed to know in each time and each place. These teachings have differed according to the needs of the people who received them but their core spirit has been the same, just as a mathematics curriculum will vary from grade to grade, but is, at its core, one harmonious whole. Thus, the great religions and spiritual traditions of the world are one. Not in the sense that they are simply different human efforts to discover the truth, efforts which have converged because of commonalities in human thinking. No, in the Baha'i view, they are one because their source is one God, who has revealed something of himself in different ways to different peoples, according to their capacities. 
Today, the arrival of Baha'u'llah marks the coming of age of humanity. Our great capacity in material terms is evident in our technology. No less evident is our crying need for the spiritual, for a coherent and universal principle to govern our lives together on a fragile planet. Many today despair that any such principle can be found, or that if found, people can agree to it. Not so, says Baha'u'llah. That which the Lord hath ordained as the sovereign remedy and mightiest instrument for the healing of all the world is the union of all its peoples in one universal cause, one common faith. Baha'u'llah. We have the capacity to overcome the problems besetting us, but it will require us to listen once again to the divine educator. And while a parent will make their child go to school whether they want to or not, today we are more or less grown up. And so when he announced himself as a manifestation of God, one of Baha'u'llah's very first teachings was that any form of coercion in matters of religion was forbidden. Indeed, he said that in this age, violence as a tool of social organization will finally be done away with. So Baha'u'llah's teachings are spread only through words and only to those who wish to hear them. But he is equally unequivocal that they are for all humanity because humanity is fundamentally one. The tabernacle of unity hath been raised. Regard ye not one another as strangers. Ye are the fruits of one tree, and the leaves of one branch. Baha'u'llah. So what was this spiritual civilization that Abdu'l-Bahá called on his American audiences to build? We can't precisely know. Baha'is believe that the writings of the faith reveal the spiritual principles that will have to be used to build that civilization. But it, that it's the task and the privilege of all of humanity to actually do the building. This will involve trial and error, steps forward and steps backward. But for Baha'is, even the moments that seem the darkest along this path of building a new civilization are illumined by a return to the writings of the faith. The seas may be stormy, but we have a North Star to guide us. We may struggle and will make many missteps, but we're not lost. While the ultimate shape of a spiritual civilization thus remains to be discovered, some of its foundational features can be clearly discerned from the writings of Baha'u'llah. The cornerstone is the principle of the oneness of humanity. The year is 1890. A Cambridge professor named Edward Brown is ushered into a room on the second floor of a large house situated about three miles away from the walls of Akka, a fortress city in Ottoman Palestine. For Brown, this is one more stage in a long journey that has taken him from England to Persia and across the Middle East. The spark that ignited this journey was a story he had read about a remarkable figure known to history as the Bab. A merchant by profession, this Bab, had announced that he was the promised one expected by Muslims in his native Iran and beyond, and that he had come bearing a new revelation from God. Tens of thousands had answered his call, and huge numbers of them had proven their devotion to the new faith and its youthful founder by giving their lives for him, mowed down by a storm of violent reaction on the part of the Persian government and clergy. 
The Bob himself had been executed by firing squad in 1850. But while persecutions had continued unabated, the fire of his followers' faith had proven inextinguishable. Upon reading the story, Edward Brown, then a young scholar of Oriental languages, was transfixed. He traveled to Persia to learn more about the Bab and his teachings, firsthand from his surviving adherents. But he was surprised to find that of those Persians who believed that the Bab was a messenger from God, an ever-growing number were now following a new figure, one whom they said had been foretold by the Bab. This new messenger, titled Baha'u'llah, had been repeatedly imprisoned and exiled again and again, ultimately to the shores of the Mediterranean. But his writings circulated secretly amongst the adherents of his faith. It is with the purpose of further investigating this new development in the story of the Bab that Brown has traveled to the mansion outside of Akka. He is not inclined to be particularly sympathetic to Baha'u'llah. It is, after all, the Bab whose story has galvanized him. Yes, the Bab did write about one who would follow him. And it is true that his very title, which means the gate in Arabic, highlights the fact that he viewed himself as merely the gate through which this new and greater messenger would arrive. But Brown isn't at all sure that any living man can live up to the legend of the Bab. Then he enters the room. These are his recollections. A second or two elapsed ere, with a throb of wonder and awe, I became definitely conscious that the room was not untenanted. In the corner where the divan met the wall sat a wondrous and venerable figure, crowned with a felt headdress, the kind called Taj by dervishes, but of unusual height and make, round the base of which was wound a small white turban. The face on whom I gazed I can never forget, though I cannot describe it. Those piercing eyes seemed to read one's very soul. Power and authority sat on that ample brow, while the deep lines on the forehead and face implied an age which the jet-black hair and beard flowing down in indistinguishable luxuriance almost to the waist seemed to belie. No need to ask in whose presence I stood, as I bowed myself before one who is the object of a devotion and love which kings might envy and emperors sigh for in vain. A mild voice bade me be seated, and then continued. Praise be to God that thou hast attained. Thou hast come to see a prisoner and an exile. We desire but the good of the world and the happiness of the nations, yet they deem us a stir up of strife and sedition worthy of bondage and banishment. That all nations should become one in faith and all men as brothers. That the bonds of affection and unity between the sons of men should be strengthened. That diversity of religion should cease and differences of race be annulled. What harm is there in this? Yet so it shall be. These fruitless strifes, these ruinous wars shall pass away, and the most great peace shall come. We are fortunate to have this pen portrait of Baha'u'llah, which conveys something of what it was like to meet him, even for one who, like Brown, was never a Baha'i. Also striking is the assurance in Baha'u'llah's words as Brown recalls them. 
yet so it shall be. Was Baha'u'llah simply expressing a hopeful confidence that the oneness of humanity would ultimately prevail? On what basis could he assert this, given not only the fewness and poverty of those who had heard his call, but the situation of the world in his time? To answer this, let's examine who Baha'is understand Baha'u'llah to be. One way to consider this question is to ask what the difference is between Baha'u'llah and a philosopher. When we speak of philosophy, we're usually talking about the efforts of the human mind to understand something about reality. So consider a few branches of philosophy. The philosopher of metaphysics tries to understand the nature of reality. The philosopher of ethics attempts to identify which human actions are right and to argue for how we can know this. Science, as a systematic attempt to gain knowledge about the physical universe, can itself be considered a philosophical pursuit evolving out of the field of natural philosophy and also owing an evolutionary debt to logic, another branch of philosophy. And then we have epistemology, which concerns itself with knowledge itself, asking questions such as, what is knowledge and how can we know something? When we talk about the philosophy of the Baha'i faith, we might be talking about this kind of philosophy. So someone can use teachings of the Baha'i faith in their attempts to answer metaphysical, ethical, epistemological, or even scientific questions. But while the core precepts inspiring such philosophical pursuits would be traceable to statements by Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, it would be misleading to therefore think of Baha'u'llah as a philosopher. Yes, like Aristotle, say, Baha'u'llah makes claims about the nature of reality. But beneath these claims is a fundamental claim that what is he is doing is not using a human mind to reach out and inquire about reality. Instead, he is speaking from a privileged understanding of reality, making statements that are a priori true. His vantage point encompasses and understands our created reality, rather than trying to figure things out about that reality from within it. Speaking of the station of a manifestation of God, a station that he himself holds, Baha'u'llah writes, through him, all things live, move, and have their being. Through his grace, they are made manifest, and unto him they all return. From him all things have sprung, and unto the treasuries of his revelation they all have repaired. From him all created things did proceed, and to the depositories of his law they did revert. There is much more that can be said about the nature of the manifestation of God, which is a topic that Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Baha explore at great length in their writings. We'll have to leave that for another day, but the point to take away for now is that Baha'is believe that the words of a manifestation of God are true and accurate. They are not speculative. And this includes Baha'u'llah's assertion that humanity is one and will, sooner or later, learn to act like it. Now, while the words of the manifestation are true, we are also told explicitly that everything that we're told is relative to our capacity to understand truth at this point in human history. O son of beauty, Baha'u'llah writes, by my spirit and by my favor, by my mercy and by my beauty, 
all that I have revealed unto thee with the tongue of power, and have written for thee with the pen of might, hath been in accordance with thy capacity and understanding, not with my state and the melody of my voice. All right. So Baha'is believe that when Baha'u'llah says that wars and strife shall pass away, the most great peace shall come, and people will become united, that this is more than a hope. It is the truth. But why is this idea so important? After all, the writings of the Baha'i faith speak to myriad topics and illuminate an enormous number of philosophical questions. Why focus on this one in an introduction to the Baha'i faith? Well, it can be tempting to ask, what is the core philosophical belief of the Baha'i faith? On the one hand, the simplest answer might be the belief that Baha'u'llah is the manifestation of God for today. As we touched on earlier when discussing the nature of religion, this is Baha'i speak for the idea that Baha'u'llah is the latest in a long line of messengers stretching back beyond recorded history to bring the guidance of God to humanity. It is from the pen of Baha'u'llah that all of what we might call Baha'i philosophy ultimately originates. And so his status and authority are, from a certain perspective, the crux of Baha'i philosophy. From another perspective, we might ask what philosophical principle animates all those writings of Baha'u'llah. Here, we can do no better than to refer to a statement by Shobi Effendi, the grandson of Abdu'l-Baha, and the guardian of the Baha'i faith, who points to, quote, the principle of the oneness of mankind as the pivot round which all the teachings of Baha'u'llah revolve. So what does this principle of the oneness of humanity entail? On its surface, it sounds like an ethical principle, a commitment to a vision of harmony and love amongst all members of the human family. And it is that, but it is also an ontological statement. Baha'u'llah, speaking from his privileged understanding of reality, states the truth of our oneness and gives us tools and inspiration to gradually realize what this truth means. Humanity is one, whether humans realize it or not. An analogy might help us here. If we think of human societies as buildings that we all help to build, then perhaps we can think of the oneness of humanity as a simple fact about physics. Let's say, it's like the physical laws governing how load gets distributed in a building. The Baha'i writings call for a building that, because it incorporates the oneness of humanity, will have perfect load-bearing. Whereas the buildings that we've built for ourselves today, in other words, our current societies, haven't got it quite right. They don't understand that physical law and so they are defective. Today is the day when this oneness of humanity must become operationalized, activated, and come to be reflected in this new building we are called on to make, which is a global civilization. Revolving around this central teaching of the oneness of humanity are all the other teachings of Baha'u'llah, designed to help us see this truth of oneness and to build a society worthy of it. We can't get into all of them today, but let's just point out that the oneness that Baha'u'llah calls for is in no way a call for the erasure of our differences. The Baha'i vision is one of unity in diversity, where the differences that we have of culture, outlook, and so forth become causes of beauty to be celebrated, 
once we learn how to be truly united. There are many passages in the Baha'i writings that can help us better understand what the oneness of humanity really means. But study alone probably won't get us to a real understanding of this concept. Working for this idea is needed, and it's going to require an enormous amount of work to bring the oneness of humanity into actual fruition. We'll close with some words from Shuri Effendi, who writes this about the oneness of humanity. Quote, it represents the consummation of human evolution, an evolution that has had its earliest beginnings in the birth of family life, its subsequent development in the achievement of tribal solidarity, leading in turn to the constitution of the city-state and expanding later into the institution of independent and sovereign nations. The principle of the oneness of mankind as proclaimed by Baha'u'llah carries with it no more and no less than a solemn assertion that attainment to this final stage and this stupendous evolution is not only necessary, but inevitable, that its realization is fast approaching and that nothing short of a power that is born of God can succeed in establishing it. Through this podcast series, we hope to learn more together about the vision the Baha'i writings hold out for the oneness of humanity. So Anthony, we, uh, we covered a few different topics today. We talked about the idea of the oneness of religion, which is also um, called the, the concept of progressive revelation in, in the Baha'i faith. And then we talked a bit about the oneness of humanity. And along the way, we also touched on what Baha'u'llah's station is. I'm curious, I, I know, so we have somewhat different backgrounds. Um, as someone who, I think it's fair to say, sort of began to think seriously about the Baha'i faith later uh, in life, not sort of in childhood necessarily, I'm wondering what you made of of these different parts of, of, of the Baha'i faith. Specifically, maybe I'm curious about how did, how did you react to the idea of the oneness of religion or the idea that religion is progressive? Uh, and then also... What did you make of this interesting claim that Baha'u'llah makes about his station? Yeah, I love that. Um, okay, so for me, I, I remember distinctly on first learning about the Baha'i faith that, uh, you know, I think this idea that religion is progressive, which is, I think, one of the uh, most kind of distinctive Baha'i ideas, I never really had to struggle with understanding religion. So the first really story that of, of what religion was that was brought to me was uh, this idea that it progressively unfolds. And I know, I understand that that's really not the story that a lot of people are told about religion. Um, but for me, I took it just as kind of axiomatic and made sense to me. And I kind of went with it. It wasn't groundbreaking, but that's because I never really thought about the phenomenon of religion at all. I think uh, I think this idea of the oneness of humanity was much more important to me than to say that religion, uh, the role of religion and the progressive un unfoldment of religion. I, th I found the idea and the more than the idea, the ideal of the oneness of humanity, very inspiring. And it really captured, it captured my heart that all people are one one people fundamentally, and that more than just all people being one people, that we have to work towards actualizing the, the tangible structures, processes, 
we have to build the right cultures in order to come together. And I found that uh, very inspiring. And that was, I think, the thing that really uh, captured my imagination in learning about the faith. I think this other idea, the way I reacted to this idea that, okay, there's a manifestation of God and that you, and that Baha'u'llah holds a privileged position. That's something that I really don't, the significance of that idea really dawned on me much later. I think sometimes what happens is that it's tempting to look at the phenomenon of religion and even sort of even believe in religion, but not take the core claims of that religion. So for example, when Christ says that Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, as an example, Christ holds a significant, a privileged position in the life of the human race and in the life of the heart of a believer, as an example. The same station that, that Baha'u'llah lays claim to. I think that took me a long time to wrap my head around about what does that mean? About like, so how is it that, for example, that you read the word of God differently than you read, for example, the words of a philosopher, rather than just reading the words of God and saying, okay, that's interesting. You know, I find that, you know, I'm going to use that information just as I use any other piece of information that comes and crosses my path, whether that information is from Foucault or this guy or that, or this person, that person, whether I, so, and then also what, how do I, uh, adjudicate like those tensions that arise when I don't agree with something that Baha'u'llah says, or when I find uh, apparent contradictions, or when, you know. So I think um, being consistent and having integrity as a person of faith and really squaring yourself with that idea that, okay, if, you, if you're going to say that you believe in, in the Baha'i faith or that you then what that means is that Baha'u'llah, that you believe that Baha'u'llah holds a privileged position epistemologically. And I know, like, that took me a long time to really wrap my mind around what are the implications of that statement for how we as individuals and as a collective live our lives. How about you, Michael? Maybe just picking up on the last idea first, um, I reflect a lot on how, so like in philosophy, uh, let's take Marx as an example, um, not to single him out for any particular kind of opprobrium, but just because uh, I'm I've had to read him for school. <laughs> uh, so like when Marx is writing, the way that he writes is quite strident and quite authoritative in the sense that he seems to be saying, this is an accurate reading of reality and no reasonable person could disagree with what I am saying. And then he sets out a whole, a whole set of concepts, categories um, as sort of given. But the argument I think that's sort of, if, if you want to make sort of think of what is the argument underlying his claim to authority? It seems to be this kind of, um, similar to the claim of the scientist to um, objectivity, that the application of human reason, when properly done, can discern the reality of things. And so since I have a good intellect, says the philosopher, and I've dispassionately examined the truth, I have arrived at or exam reality, I've arrived at the truth and now I'm delivering the truth to you. It's so interesting that, so there's, there's almost an, an erasure of the philosopher. The philosopher wants to appear invisible because it's not about him or her. It's, there's this claim to objectivity. That my rational faculty has tapped into because that's what the rational faculty does. Taps right, into objective right. truths. Right. And, and the extent to which the philosopher presents him or herself as a subjective actor in the philosophy they're presenting could kind of muddy the waters and make the person wonder, well, 
well, is, is this actually objective or is this just your read of things? And that's not, that paints a hugely broad brush. There are a lot of philosophers who are much more transparent about that than I would argue Marxism, a lot of his writings. But then you look at what uh, uh, Christ or Baha'u'llah or, or any of these, these figures who make this claim to be something more, to carry a message from God, is very different because their reading of reality is not, they don't claim that it's based on a purely rational human analysis of reality. It's intimately bound up with who they are and that they have this, as we sort of discussed it, they have a privileged access to reality. And so it's an interesting, I mean, what they claim is that they are giving you an objective view of reality, but also one that's, from a certain sense, it's subjective. In a certain sense, it's, it's extremely relative because they're trying to convey things that we cannot grasp. And so they're doing it in whatever terms we can, you know, sort of profit from and, and, and however we can come closest to it. So there's an interesting kind of interweaving of the subjective, the objective, and the relative. It's very different from, I think, the work of the philosopher. Yeah. One of the things that I had thought about, I mean, I read Williams Hatcher's paper about this, the claim of infallibility. And so it got me thinking, okay, so you might think that because let's say Baha'u'llah or Christ or that the word of God is a priori true, because they have this privileged uh, position, that automatically the words of God are to be read literally or factually mm-hmm. or straight in a straightforward way. But mm-hmm. I think uh, oversimplifying in a, in a sense, like, okay, they are true, but their, their truth is not necessarily apparent to me, right? Or to humanity as a whole. I think that the, the shift in the burden to read and understand, there's still like, a lot of interpretive room, even though they are true, it doesn't necessarily know that we know what they mean. It doesn't necessarily, I, I think one, one question that could arise is, okay, so you have, let's say, an infallible leader, and that's just a way of a shorthand for uh, closing any investigation or closing down any human thought. And so it just, it leads you to then just shut down thinking and shut down the, the need to search. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that I'm, I really love about the Baha'i faith is that's not the case. There is an emphasis that even though there's, a, there's still a lot of room to search and just as nature reveals itself to us infallibly, but we have to work hard to uncover its truths. Mm-hmm. So we have to work hard. The words of God reveal themselves to us infallibly, but we have to work to search and understand, to hone in on uh, it, the characteristics of the word of God, to be able to understand, I think. And I, so, mm-hmm. yeah, I like that. You could even make a, uh, maybe another comparison would be um, art that you, you can't sit with a great book and skim through it quickly once and then claim that because you've understood the literal meaning, in other words, the sequence of the plot uh, that you've, you've unpacked the richness of the book and understand what it's really trying to convey. Well, this seems, this seems like a topic that maybe we could think about a future episode for, uh, the relationship between the claim that the manifestation has access to truth on an objective level, but that what is then conveyed to us is relative, and then the role for the independent investigation of the truth, which is a foundational Baha'i, Baha'i principle. I think that can make for a very interesting discussion. I'm, uh, I'm interested to go a bit more to what you said earlier as well about the oneness of humanity. How has this understand or this idea from the Baha'i faith, how has it changed 
your way of being in the world. Mm, you know what I mean? You might be tempted to say like, oh, it's made me more compassionate and like I, I understand, like I'm much more interested. You know, I think I'm not really sure, honestly. Like, I'm not sure. I don't know. <laughs> well, can, maybe, maybe this is hard to answer for oneself. Can I suggest what I've observed? I know when I think like, okay, what does the oneness of humanity mean? Sometimes my mind immediately goes to very big picture. It means that the people of the planet, no matter what ethnic group they belong to, no matter what geographic location they can be found in, they are all equal on a spiritual level. Um, and this is a concept that religion is often talked about as um, the idea that the human is made in the image of God. And that, in some sense, is the source of our equality. But then I think about, well, it may not always be obvious how that gets actualized in our day-to-day -day life. Uh, but something that I notice in, in you, I think, is, I mean, I guess it's fair to say you have a, you're fairly gregarious by nature, like you're, you're, you're very open and you, you like talking to people. But in the way that you talk to people, my, my sense is that you're, you, no matter who they are, where they're from, what their background is, my sense is that you are always treating everyone like they're an end in and of themselves. It's never sort of just getting through a conversation for, you know, for a, an end that's just your own end, right? Um, like you're genuinely interested in people. And it doesn't matter who it is, whoever, whoever you talk to, it's... You know, I mean, I think one of the things I really struggle with, and I have this enduring belief in the oneness of, of humanity, and that sometimes if I, if I weren't a Baha'i, I wouldn't necessarily believe that, right? So I, as an example, so you have sometimes differences among peoples of the world that are so profound that you sometimes think there's no compatibility possible here. Like this is just one of those fissures that we'll never be able to overcome that difference. So whether it be uh, philosophical differences or differences in the way you approach relationships or differences in the way you like what you think is polite or what you think is good or what you think is the, uh, an appropriate living of human life or just like there's just different ways people think about life and they think about reality, they think about relationships, they think about what's valuable. Like, and so sometimes when you really, really uh, are open to somebody else, you find that their approach to life deeply incompatible with yours. And you can't see where the compatibility would arise from, right? And so I think for myself, I mean, if we want to be serious about this oneness, if we want to be serious that everybody is included in oneness, right? Then we have to really come to terms with the complexities, the paradoxes, the subtle nuances that come and the complications that arise as a result of that oneness. Mm -hmm. And so as I try to, I mean, I, as I try to engage with people on a deeper level, as I try to understand other people's beliefs and, and I try to share my beliefs and build common vision with people in my day-to-day con -day conversations with my friends or people that I know or whatever, I'm often struck that, oh, if it were left into my vision, I would not be, I would not believe in the oneness of humanity. Mm -hmm. Not really, right? People have 
different political ideologies, different personal ideologies. Like they're different and their differences are not necessarily conscious to them. They're, they're needed into the fabric of how they live their lives. And so you just think, well, screw the whole thing, right? Sometimes like, <laughs> what, what do you mean oneness? Like, we, okay, it's a nice idea, but it's not going to play out in reality, right? And so, and then this is one of the main criticisms that people level against the Baha'i faith. And often you hear this, that when you, when you talk about the oneness of humanity, you, people say, that's just idealistic, right? Mm. And I think if I weren't a Baha'i, if I didn't have this en enduring belief in not only the station of Baha'u'llah, not, and not only, and it's, if I didn't see in some sense, the evidence through Baha'u'llah's revelation, and I, I and I, I, I think I would have a lot of difficulty with that too, because sometimes you do, you talk to people and you try to find common analysis with them, but no matter how much you search, they kind of just blow up in your face and you don't, so you don't, you don't find those compatibilities. The deeper you go, the more differences you find. And you're just like, well, I, I, I can't unite these differences. Hmm. So I often struggle with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. The, the difference between the idea that like a, something like the oneness of humanity, it could be held as just sort of like a hope. And it's very different when it's held as a belief that this is the, this is actually the truth and it is also the future. And it's a matter of, you know, the, what the, the seed has been planted and we don't see the tree, but we know that trees come from seeds. Um, it's sort of like, like you can imagine, you know, we both have uh, young sons. When you're dealing with your child, like if you didn't, if you suddenly forgot or had amnesia, didn't know either that this was your child or that children grew up into adults, losing those two pieces of knowledge about what the child is and what the child will become, the level of frustration with the child's behavior would just be, it would make the whole thing not worth it. Oh yeah, like, forget I, I, it. Just call it off. <laughs> yeah, like... Maybe someone else will come and take this child off my hands. But once you know those things, it's entirely different because every sort of, you know, misbehavior every, or misstep. It's... Everything becomes viewed in light of its mm -hmm. unfolding, in light of that, in light of a belief that it's an unfolding process. And this is part of that yeah. process, but this is yeah. not, you know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and, and I think that the world has come, has taken a huge step to the extent that many, many people, maybe even most people in the world today, I, I'm not sure, but let's say many, many people today do believe that the oneness of humanity is at least something is a good idea or is 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 something that they would hope for and that's not something to take for granted because in past times that was not the attitudes of people towards those who were different from them but then that next step i think is where bahá'u'lláh really has has something very important to say to humanity is that next step of taking it from just this sort of pious hope to the realm of reality and and vision i think you know we should never underestimate the capacity of people to get bogged down in their differences and not to be able to see past their differences. People can turn mountains out of moles and then get stuck in, in these in, in dynamics and patterns that completely undermine the capacity for unity. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think, I, th I think for me, that's one of the things that I'm so proud about the Baha'i faith for, that it's not, it's not just an idea. Uh, there's, there are a number of really so, everything about the Baha'i faith is really woven into their practices, ideas, processes, institutions, mm -hmm. guidelines. There's so many aspects of the Baha'i faith that teach you 
and emphasize how do you live in unity with people who are possibly extremely different from you. And mm -hmm. so I think it's, yeah, for me, that it's key. I wouldn't, yeah. I don't think I would believe that humanity could be one if I didn't see the Baha'i faith for, first. Yeah. yeah. And I think it, it, it bears mentioning in that context that the Baha'is themselves are, I mean, we are people growing up in the world as it is, and we will individually constantly fall short of the ideal in, in this respect as in every other respect. <laughs> but, um, but it is, as you say, there, there are these things we can come back to, sort of the ideals, the practices, the spiritual teachings that, under, that underlie all of them. I'm, I'm always reminded of a story when this topic comes up that I think I find quite powerful if we can, to the extent that we can put ourselves back in the historical moment to understand what it meant. So during Baha'u'llah's lifetime, there were quite a number of Zoroastrian Persians who became Baha'is. But during the mission of the Bab, who was the predecessor of Baha'u'llah, and also uh, Baha'is believe a manifestation of God. Uh, from what I've read, uh, there's only one known Zoroastrian who became a Babi. And there were kind of reasons for this. The, the Bab's message, um, at least on its surface, seemed much more geared towards very specific eschatological expectations of Muslims, specifically of 12 or Shiite Muslims. And there's this historical antagonism between Muslims and Zoroastrians that meant that a Zoroastrian would just, if even if they heard about it, might just be profoundly distrustful of anyone making claims within that sort of uh, Muslim worldview. And it's a very sad story because, I mean, in the Quran, uh, the Prophet Muhammad enjoins upon his followers to respect the followers of other revealed religions. But the way this, the history had worked out in Iran, by the time the Bab arrives, the Zoroastrians are a very disadvantaged minority. And there's sort of social rules, like if a Zoroastrian is on horse and a Muslim goes by on foot, the Zoroastrian has to dismount because it's disrespectful for them to be on horse. Or um, it would be considered a defilement for a Muslim to eat or drink from the same utensils or, or cups or whatever that a Zoroastrian had drunk from. So anyway, this, the story of this one Zoroastrian man who becomes a Babi, as I recall it, and I hope I'm not butchering the details too badly, it has very little to do with understanding the sort of intricacies of the Bab's doctrine. It's that he's invited into the home of a person who he believes to have been a Muslim, who, had, who was a Muslim and became a Babi, and this man shares a cup with him. He gives him something to drink and then drinks from the same cup, and the Zoroastrian is just flabbergasted. And this demonstration of the power of the Bob's message to erode this centuries-old entrenched prejudice is so powerful for him that he just unhesitatingly becomes a becomes a Bobby, knowing nothing else about it from, from what I understand. Wow. Yeah, that's beautiful. And you see the need for that type of spirit across the world today mm -hmm. uh, in so many places where this ingrained sense of prejudice is alive and well and getting stronger. <laughs> and certainly one of the dimensions in which it remains is in sort of the divisions that exist between religious communities and within them, which of course then is, is the other big, uh, big topic that we, that we touched on. But as we said, these are all, I think, conversations that we'll, we'll hope to continue as the episodes go on and they're too big to try to completely encapsulate today. Uh, so what do you think? Maybe, maybe we'll leave it there for now. Sounds wonderful, Michael. Thank great. you so much for uh, chatting. It was a great chat and look forward to touching base on one of our future episodes. Yeah, look forward to it. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you.